This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Journey of My Heart, a memoir. And the author is Marianne Shevland. And Marianne joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Marianne. Hi, how are you? Well, great to have you with us. And a great memoir. This literally is going to take us down this road that many are facing and many more will face because of the baby boomers getting older and older, and many are, of course, uh, going to be a very create a very trying, trying experience for their family members as they pass away. It's it's uh, it's a reality. It's just going to happen, just like it happened to you in 2003. Your husband, after 19 years of going deteriorating, his health just uh, getting of uh, uh, Less and less, and there that big day came, didn't it? December ninth, two thousand three. That it wasn't surprising. At the same time, it was absolutely, absolutely. It it literally took my breath away because I lost my very best friend, and it was it was very traumatic because the day he died was our forty first wedding anniversary, and I found him dead at our home, and it just. It just right. nearly killed me. Yeah, that's well. This is a love story, as you write, where one partner is smitten with a progressive terminal disease, a family who faced the unknown with emotional courage, determination, and the desire to bring the best quality possible to their allotted time. So, over those nineteen years, you still wanted to make it the best, but at the same time, uh, it just got harder and harder. Absolutely. It was it was so difficult because so much time was spent in the hospitals with major crises and ICU. And I mean, it was just life and death seemed like all the time for a long period of time. And yet when we'd have those brief windows when he would be feeling more stable in a better situation, we always talk about what we wanted to do in the future and try to hang on to our dreams. And, you know, it was just, we were just wanting the very, very best for our other partner, you know, and it was just devastating because we both knew what was coming and it was just killing us inside. But we were just determined that on a good day, if we could go outside and sit on the porch and just have a cup of coffee and talk and listen to the birds chirping, and et cetera, that was a wonderful day. That was a quality day because we had each other. Mm. And we truly believed that if we did everything that all the doctors told us to do, that, you know, he was going to get through this. You know, this too shall pass. But it didn't. And it, it was just devastating. But you knew as you wrote, you always knew that someday, way out there in the future, Sheldon would be gone. Uh, and, I, of course, I when did. that day came earlier than you expected, uh, how did that leave you feeling? Well, absolutely. It was the most horrific thing that ever happened in my life, the moment I found him. And when I was dealing with all those intense feelings, uh, I felt like I was going to go crazy absolutely crazy it was extremely a rough passage it had so many details and the shock and the loneliness and confusion anger long periods of depression uh, my world just exploded and i felt i had been hit in my own heart because of his death i was terribly lost it was it was just terrible so My emotions just came and went like waves that crashed into rocky shores. Some of these waves were big and very turbulent, some more than others. But I knew that there was going to be a tugging on my heart for many, many years, and you know I was absolutely right. But 
eventually in God's time, I reached a, a point of acceptance mm. and a new beginning began to start, but it was the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life. Acceptance, that is a, a big, big wall to climb, I'm sure. Oh, slippery slopes on that one. Yeah. And it took many, many years. And even though it's been a long period of time now since he's been gone, in my mind's eye, it seems like moments ago. I'll never forget, not remember, be crushed because of what happened. You say there's very little written for the average person to read that will lead to an understanding of how others have made their way through change and grief to eventual recovery. So, obviously, the purpose of your book. Right, right. Uh, most of the books that I had seen prior to mine were written about clinical, you know, and one, two, three steps, but they didn't talk about how are you supposed to get through major lifestyle changes, followed by all these financial hardships and your grief and recovery. Uh, so I was telling my story from a wife's perspective. Uh, I tried to show a torch on this subject because it's often avoided, and I gave the human response to how do you get through moment after moment, day after day. It's excruciating, and my heart goes out to anyone that has to go through this, but millions do. So you need to have some kind of support for yourself. As you absolutely, think. absolutely. I, you know, I would suggest that if you could find a friend who, who you feel very comfortable to talk to, just have them come over or you go to them and sit and talk and don't be judged because the thoughts that tumble out of your head are coming from a place that's called a broken heart. And you need someone just to listen or just to be able to look around and see that friend sitting there means and speaks of volumes. I can't stress that enough. You cannot do this one by yourself. I tried, and it does not work. You need as much support. Also, I tried to do a lot of journaling, and that helped release a lot of my intense feelings, getting them on paper, and that was eventually the start of my book, although I did not realize that because my journaling is in my book, and it tells how I went through those terrible hours to working through, getting through the grief, listening to my music, walking, exercise, friends, combination of things like that, but you cannot do this one by yourself. Someone might ask, now, don't the medical doctors explain in detail to you everything you need to know? I wish they did, but frankly, they simply do not have the time nor the energy. They have so many other patients. They come in very quickly into the hospitals and tell you a few short words. This is what you should do when you get home, and, and I'll see you in X amount of days. And you're left thinking, what should I do? You know, it's all my responsibility. I was always afraid to take him home because I thought, what if something happened to him and I didn't even know what to do? Because I wasn't familiar with heart problems, but I sure learned. And you suggest that everyone, when they're going through that m medical uh, process, that you take a spiral notebook to every one of these meetings and write everything down. Absolutely, because I tell you what, I scribbled as fast as I could when we were meeting with the doctors. And I tell you, when I got home, it sure made my life easier because those pages were dog-eared because I looked at them frequently. You know, there's just so much, and you're trying to go through all of the critical situation of the crisis and realizing every time you're in the hospital, it's another step moving away from you. And it's you're just scared to death. So, basically, the fear of the unknown is probably the biggest, greatest challenge that could even drive you nuts. Oh, absolutely. I thought I was literally going mad. You know, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I, I, just, I just sat and relived every moment. And it, it was killing me. 
Literally, it was killing me. But time does help, you know, but you have to get up and start taking those baby steps to try to, you know, get out of the house each day. Maybe if you can only get to the front yard like I did many times, then I made it to the grocery store, then I made it to church. You know, but I was determined. I was going to try to get my life back because I was just so scared. I'd never been by myself before. And then to lose my partner on our wedding anniversary. But, you know, time has gone by and I have worked very hard at it. And I have a very incredible life now. I'm very happy. And I just want to be able to share my story that there are so many people out there that are going through this. The thing that really kept me going most was people would say, how can you keep going through this time after time, one crisis after another? Well, I knew it was simple for me, maybe not for others, but the vows that we spoke before God and our friends on our wedding day to love, honor, cherish throughout sickness and health till death do us part were extremely important to me and words that I would always honor because what sustained us most was our love for one another and our continued faith that this too shall pass. How angry were you at God? Honestly, I don't think I went through that phase because my husband had had so many critical life and death and he had been in such pain that it was a relief for me, for him, not to have him suffering and not to see that suffering. So I did not experience anger. Well, that has to be the hardest when you see your loved one suffering. That is the oh, very hardest. Oh, it killed me. It killed me. It literally killed me inside. And I still had to maintain a job and drive, you know, a couple of hours on my commute through heavy traffic. And, you know, because the main breadwinner was not working. And so... All the financial hardships, there's just such a rod of problems that go with this whole package that it's incredible. Very important to be actively social. You have to be. You have to be. You know, um, it was just uh, vitally important that if I could just spend five minutes with somebody just to say, hi, how are you doing? Something not related to crisis, death, bills, that sort of thing. It was just like a shot in the arm to me. So is your book, uh, as you describe your book, this book, The Journey of My Heart, a memoir, Marianne, is it a guide, a step-by-step kind of uh, what to do, what not to do? No, no. Okay. It's, uh, it's like more than a memoir. It's an inspirational guide for others who find themselves faced with seemingly insurmountable challenge. Uh, they need a story to relate to uh, for their personal lives, like I told my personal story. Events like the impending death, the struggle to pay all the medical and household bills, with the loss of the major breadwinner, uh, you know, with a full-time job. And I, I sincerely and hope and pray that Journey of My Heart is the book that can help others answer all those questions and help sort out their problems by looking at how I led my life and how I went through this journey. Marianne, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can order it from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or iUniverse Publishing Company. And that's in hardback, softback, ebooks, or Nook. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host, Mary Similuka. And frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Lies, Have Ruined the World. How the lies of religion, government, and the courts have invaded every corner of our life, enslaving billions on the globe and the solutions that will give us back our freedoms. And the author is Dennis Richard Prue, and Denny joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Denny. Hi, Steve. How you doing? Well, I want to prepare everyone. You're a man just filled with passion about this. Yes. Uh, I guess the topic is one of those that people are not going to be neutral one way or the other. It's, it's going to excite passion. So I'm passionate about what I believe and what I've found. Well, you say the world is based on lies. Every religion is a lie. Every government is a horrible misrepresentation of the truth. Every court is corrupt and unconstitutional. But the real world is based on science and fact. So I guess we've lost touch with facts. Is that it? Well, I think what's happened is that the lies are so pernicious. They're in every corner of our society that uh, it has representatives called liars who stand up and defend the lies rather than take a new look at the world of science and facts and determine to tell truth as opposed to get comfortable with the lies they were indoctrinated into. And uh, for me, it started out when I was a young kid. Um, I was exposed to the lies of the community I lived in we lived in a community that was divided down the river, down the middle of the river. Blacks lived on one side and whites on the other. And unfortunately, the churches and the government and the courts all reinforced that craziness because blacks were supposed to be inferior. And I remember hearing a sermon about women, that women shouldn't work outside the home. In fact, the minister said women who work outside the home are whores. And as a kid, I knew that was a lie. My teachers were women. The clerks at the stores were women. Secretaries were women. There were all kinds of people. And the nurses at the hospital were women. They weren't whores. And so I knew it was a lie. But it was amazing to me that the community that I lived in not only believed these lies, but reinforced them and made sure that... uh, women had to pay a price for working outside the home. I mean, even women who were divorced or widowed or whatever else, I don't know what they were supposed to do. But, of course, it was a lie. And so I, I set out on a journey even then that uh, to find out truth about things because I knew that if there wasn't truth, there wouldn't be freedom. I knew there wasn't freedom for women. I knew there wasn't freedom for blacks. And then as I I grew, I found out that the courts were extremely corrupt. We lost our family fortune because the probate court decided to divide it amongst the lawyers and a corrupt judge. And we absolutely know he was a corrupt alcoholic because I went to school with his son who later exposed the fact that he'd been stealing from estates for years. He was deceased at that point when his son revealed that to me. But we lost the family fortune because of corrupt courts. And then I realized that the probate court was a wonderful place for corrupt lawyers and judges 
to live off society, uh, make fortune. So anyway, then as I grew up, I volunteered for Vietnam, and I realized that my government uh, did nothing but lie. President Johnson, President Nixon uh, told continuous lies that cost the lives of over 60,000 you know, wonderful Americans. But you know, our whole history has been a lie of slavery, a lie of unconstitutional discrimination against women, blacks, minorities, immigrants, gays. And so I wanted to find out what's the truth. I figured the truth was the route to freedom for all human beings. It would uh, certainly get us a little closer we are today as far as how we see women, but we haven't made it yet. Women are still discriminated against. They get paid less. They're treated poorly. Blacks still don't have freedom. I mean, the tokenism doesn't amount to the same thing as equal education and equal opportunity. So I wanted to do my research, and I spent a great deal of my younger years getting the tools to do that. So I learned uh, Greek and Hebrew and Latin and German and Russian, Koine Greek, Aramaic, because I wanted to read the original texts in the original languages. And what I found absolutely shocked me. Well, that's impressive that you did all that. And, of course, along the way, you were a former CEO of an international consulting firm, uh, telling, I guess, businesses uh, they didn't want to hear what you had to say because it was, again, facts and truth. Absolutely. You know, when a corporation is based on lies, they might, might not even realize they're lies, but there's a price to be paid. Lies are never harmless. And so when I would see companies doing strategic planning around groups of senior executives telling each other lies, I would say to them, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because there are truths out there that are important to discover so that uh, you can get on the path towards you know, making a more profitable company. And I had over 110 clients, and every single one of them made money from doing the hard work of exposing the lies and learning the truth about their markets and their competitors and so on. And, you know, I had a good background. I have a couple of master's degrees. I have a master's in science, and I taught graduate courses in, in business uh, exposing my students to, you know, if you're going to get out there and be successful, truth and facts have to be the basis for everything you do. So if lies are the source of, uh, you know, your, the base for your life, you're in trouble. And that's when I began to keep notes. I took a 23-year period. I had boxes and boxes of notes. And one of the things I did was to explore religion. And what I found out was, uh, you know, religion's a lie. Every religion's a lie. And I studied all of them. Uh, even though there are 3,800 different versions of it in the United States alone, I started with Judaism. And starting with Genesis, realized that the world wasn't created 6,000 years ago. We know that the world is 4.6 billion years old. We also know that humans have been around for 160,000 years at least. We know that DNA spread all over the world 100,000 years before the mythical figures of Adam and Eve were created in the imaginations of some Jewish writers of the Torah. And so it gets to the critical point. If Adam and Eve never existed, then they couldn't have committed an act of sin that brought death into the world. Death existed for billions of years. And so Genesis 1 continuing, are all lies, all created by very clever liars when they were in captivity in Assyria, not Egypt, in Assyria, 700 years after the supposed Egypt events, and they wrote lies. They were creating literally a myth about who they were as a people. Now, the critical piece that comes down, if Adam and Eve didn't exist, and they didn't bring sin and death into the world, then Jesus is irrelevant. He's totally irrelevant. He didn't rescue us from sin and death. Oh my gosh. That means whoever Jesus was, he was just delusional. He believed the Jewish lies because he was a Jew himself. But that didn't make it any more true. And you can go down point for point. No one there never happened. There was never a universal flood. We know that for a fact. We know that evolution is absolutely fact. There's no longer any question about 
how DNA came down to us and who we are evolved from. But if, let's say, Noah's Ark were true, like religionists want to say, that would mean that in a mass murder of millions of people done by Yahweh, their God, it would have been the, the largest mass murder of third trimester fetuses in the history of the world. Not something religionists should go around bragging about. And then they have other events like the captivity in Egypt, which never happened, by the way. There's not one single piece of evidence that there was a people called the Israelites in Egypt for 400 years in captivity. Never happened. But let's say, you know, just to humor them, that the Passover, where the angel of death passed over the homes of the Egyptians and uh, killed the firstborn, that would be the largest mass murder in the history of the world on one night. And sadly, Jews celebrate that as a happy time. Let's have a meal. That's when God killed over a million people just so that he could tell us we were special. And what we realize, religion is cruel, it's degenerate, it's a lie. There's not one piece of evidence that the Exodus ever happened. There's not one sandal. That's 40 years in the desert for over a million people. There's nothing, no human excrement. No monuments, no clothes, no nothing. There's nothing there. And when you talk about the blood in the Nile, I mean, all you have to do is think logically, scientifically. That would be 74 trillion cubic feet of blood replacing all the water that would have decimated all wildlife, all fish, all humans. Because humans, without water for about four days, would all be dead. We know that event never happened. Historically, there is no note of that by anyone other than these writers of the Torah 700 years later when they were trying to figure out who they were as a people in captivity in Assyria. We also know it's a lot because they talked about priestly functions with Aaron. The temple never existed when, when Moses supposedly was around. Therefore, that's anachronistic. It's a lie. You go point for point for point, and I have proven in my book, Genesis, Genesis and Exodus are total lies. The Jesus event is totally irrelevant. There was no sin and death to be rescued from. Death is natural and normal. And everything that's ever existed on the earth has died. And we will too. So now if we know that truth, then we're no longer going to allow religionists to tell us, don't use contraception, don't enjoy sex even in marriage, you know, don't live your life you know, in freedom. Do what we tell you to do. Bring us your money. We're not going to put up with that anymore. We're not going to put up with speaking tongues and snake handlers and other liars. But we now know that since 97% of the people in the United States believe that nonsense, one form or another, that means they're also the judges. They're also the politicians. They're also the president and the vice president. And if you believe the nonsense that the world is only 6,000 years old, my goodness, how are you going to make decisions about the economy and world peace and about, you know, running a civil society? If you're going to go back and refer to a book of lies as the basis for everything that's important, you see, it's just tragic. You know, and then the worst thing about where it finally came out is that Islam is really just a sect of Judaism. If you read the Koran, you realize it's just massive borrowing from the Hebrew scriptures. And that's what uh, Muhammad wanted it to be, but he just decided he got all bent out of shape one day and decided to murder all the Jews under his uh, reign. And uh, so that kind of severed the tie with the Jewish religion, even though they still you know, honored the prophets and Jesus and all that sort of thing. The reality is, once Judaism fell, as a total lie, Christianity and Islam goes too. That's six billion people who believe lies. And now I'm writing a book telling people, you're liars. And until you tell the truth, everything else is easier to lie about. And in fact, it is. Women are still discriminated against. Blacks are poorly treated. There are slaves held in the world, world by people who are rich. What a tragic reality, and it's all based on lies. Well, as I said, at, so the, as I said at the beginning, yeah, uh, Denny, uh, in introducing you, you're a man of a great deal of passion. I think you've proven that. 
<laughs> because there's no middle ground here for you. There's no middle ground. And of course, not only talking about religion, your book goes through, as you've just laid the the case, uh, if, if religion is a lie, then all governments are liars, uh, government officials. And of course, you're right to the point with a chapter about lawyers. All lawyers are scum. I mean, you you didn't mince any words there. No. The, uh, the lawyers in our society now use the courts as ATMs. It's so manipulative. People worry about not being able to afford uh, medical care. Nobody can afford legal care. That's tragic because the courts are supposed to be the final arbiter between you and me and our constitutional rights and so on. If you're not rich, you have no rights in the legal system in America. The other thing is the legal system, the laws are written by uh, congressmen who tend to be religious idiots, and they write laws to enforce morality. You cannot enforce morality. But this is the result. We now have millions of people in prison because the morality of marijuana became something that the religionists in Congress wanted to enforce. Let's get them out there. Let's make sure that there are more home invasions, policemen killed, everything else. We're going to stop drugs, and they haven't stopped drugs. But, boy, they sure stand up and talk about law and order and morality. That's religious nonsense. That's Old Testament, an eye for an eye. And even worse, what we're finding, over 2,000 blacks and Hispanics have been released by the Innocence Project because they were innocent. But they were found guilty by moralistic courts and juries and congressional law. If you look at most of the laws on the book, they have nothing to do with safety and a secure society. They have to do with moralistic nonsense. And now the Catholic Church wants to go to the government and say, we want to stop contraception even for our employees who are not Catholic. So what does the government do? Backs down. So everyone bows to religion. Absolutely. It's in every single corner of our lives. And we listen to the nonsense. I mean, we're going to listen to this, this Pope. I call him the love me Pope. Love me, I pretend I'm poor. <laughs> and, I, and I live in a multi-million dollar apartment. And uh, he's not going to go up there, though, but... If you're a 12-year-old girl who gets raped and gets pregnant, if you have an abortion, you're going to hell. Where's the compassion? Where's the compassion for the poor? Hundreds and thousands of churches and schools are closed in poor areas, but not in rich areas. But this is the church of the poor. There are how many thousands of pedophile priests that have been hidden and protected by the church? When you live a lie you can do something like that. And thus the title of Denny's book, Lies Have Ruined the World. Dennis Richard Prue is the author. Denny, tell us how to get your book. Well, I've made it 99 cents as an ebook on Amazon.com. I'm not out to make profit. I want the book to be read, discussed, and I want people to prove me wrong. Well, there you go, everyone. You can't beat that challenge, especially at that price. Thank you, Denny, so much for being with us. Obviously, you've shared your Great. passion Thank about you. lies. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. I appreciate the time. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. 
Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Blood on China Beach, My Story as a Brain Surgeon in Vietnam. And the author is Dr. Paul J. Pitlick. And Paul joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much, Steve. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, really appreciate you sharing your memoir with us and, and at the same time salute you for your great service back in Vietnam. And we'll get into those details because this is about a young, emotionally drifting neurosurgeon, as you called yourself back then, seeking a meaning to life. Uh, so this is much more than just running off somewhere to uh, just, you know, whatever the glory of war, so to speak. Of course, that wasn't very glorified as we look back, but a lot of people dying, a lot of injuries. Uh, you say there is no book available that depicts a neurosurgeon in a combat setting. So comes to mind is MASH, the TV series. Uh, of course, you know, that was... Uh, had its own political statement, but this is uh, this takes us right there, doesn't it? You take us right there. Yes, that's true. And at that time, you're how old? You've become a neurosurgeon after many years of, of training. How old were you? I was 32 years old, Steve. 32, and the war is raging, and why? I mean, many people thought you were nuts. Yes, the war was was mounting, I think there, it was 1965, and I understand there were 120,000 troops over there. At the end of the water, uh, there were about five or 600,000. So it was building up, uh, and I finished training at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, and I had opportunities, several opportunities, to join neurosurgeons here and there in the country. Um, to um, engage in the practice of neurosurgery, which is surgery on the brain and on cord. Uh, I had been trained to do it, uh, although there were some deficiencies in the training. Uh, it was, it was uh, adequate. However, I felt something was missing in my world. I really did not want to go out, open a practice, sit in an office, see patients, and operate on those who needed it and advise those who don't. I needed something else. I, I felt that um, I, I literally was uh, drifting emotionally, uh, and I just would listen to the newscasts and uh, read in the newspaper about this uh, developing uh, war in a place called South Vietnam, uh, uh, halfway around the world, and as the days went on, I became more and more attracted to the, that phenomena, whatever it was. And hmm. Finally, uh, I decided that I'm going to have to get involved, and that's why I joined. So, must have been some thoughts about being killed over there? Yes, that certainly was part of the reason that I hesitated. Not all of it, but part of it. Uh, and the, um, uh, the possibilities were there, and, of course, they, they were quite real when I got over there. Uh, at any rate, it wasn't enough to prevent me from continuing my, my thrust forward and, and going over there. Um, and I just uh, 
felt when I got there uh, much more terrified. Um, I remember getting on a, a freight plane in Saigon, which is a, the biggest city in South Vietnam, after I was taken over there by an Air Force plane across the Pacific. When I got on the freight plane, I realized that this is a dangerous place. The pilots were wearing weapons. The crew in the back were wearing weapons. There were bullet holes in the plane. Mm. And in a pilot off, he says, we're going to have to bend the drift to the right because one of our planes was shot down and crashed yesterday, and you'll see that. And with that, Steve, uh, I was terror-stricken, and I, I thought I'd made a tremendous res- uh, mistake. However, uh, the uh, I was cast into that mode, and I knew I was going to have to pursue it. But you felt kind of driven to do this. Yes. Yeah. Yes, there's no question. I, I, right. I was driven. And even then, yeah. uh, dealing with the fear, I, I felt driven, and I felt, well, I'm here. I'm, I'm going to do what I told them I do, uh, which is the surgery for, for the Marine Corps in, in uh, South Vietnam. Well, right at your opening your prologue i can just read a little bit it just kind of takes us there suddenly i heard the now familiar sound of approaching choppers i tensed choppers at charlie med meant wounded were coming in i left my tent and watched as the landing lights of the helicopters lit up our landing pad wow i mean that's that's uh more than anybody can really imagine because uh, it's, it's the written word, but the emotion, the, the everything you're feeling when those choppers start coming in. What what were you feeling? Well, I was uh, I, I was frightened that I would not be able to perform as I told the Navy I could when I went over there. Uh, and the the facilities were primitive. We were working in tents. Uh, the lighting was abominable. The artillery was blasting in the background. The helicopters were making a horrible racket. Uh, And rather than operating room gowns, we used our uniforms, and we we had to wear a sidearm, a pistol on our hip, in case uh, the enemy jumped on us. We were right on the edge of combat uh, areas. Uh, So I I was fearful, but somehow I, I knew that my job was to do what I was told I was going to have to do over there was neurosurgery. Uh, parenthetically, I was told that you will be the only one who can do brain surgery for the Marines there. You're the only one. You're all we got. So mm. do your best. Right. Uh, and that sort of sustained me, Steve. Mm-hmm. I realized that I don't care what else is going on around here. Somehow we're going to have to get this job done. I mean, when you see the wounded come in and you see these, uh, you know, all the blood, all the all the gore that goes with war, uh, how did you deal with it? Well, of course, in my training, I have uh, five years of training in neurosurgery. Sure. I'd, I'd seen a great deal. Nothing of that magnitude. Right. It was the, the difference. The factor that was different was the number of cases. Uh, so I wasn't intimidated by that as much as I was the fact that I was going to have to operate in an in a intensely deprived environment. Uh, in fact, that on a couple of occasions I had operated in a tent that wasn't even our operating room tent. It was a mess tent. That's food. And my operating uh, table was a mess table. Oh it was like a park bench. Uh, the only light we had were flashlights from Corman. Uh, there was no anesthesia available mm. to me. And it was it was a, a very, very intimidating situation for, I think, any surgeon, and particularly a neophyte such as me. Well, you, you write that you saved lives, but at the same time you sent many home as mental cripples. What, why, do you, why did you say that? That is probably the uh, most controversial aspect of having been there. Um, I realized after doing many cases that I was able to keep them from dying. However, many of them had additional injuries, and by saving the life of them, by operating on their brain, preventing them from dying from a brain injury, I also was sending home a cripple. And by way of example, one Marine came in, both legs were shot off, his right arm was off, both eyes were destroyed, and he had a fragment in his brain. 
and I took him to the operating room and operated, and I knew that I could, I knew I could keep him from dying by operating on his brain. However, at the same time, I knew I was going to send him home to a terrible future. Uh, and to this day, sometimes I think at night, he's somewhere a middle-aged man, wow. somewhere in a nursing home. I mean, do you have nightmares about that at all? Yes, that? I did. And yeah. I still have, I'm still bothered by those. This mm -hmm. is just one case of, of sure. many that happened. Sure. Um, in, in previous wars, let's face it, they, they did not have helicopters. That began in, in uh, Korea. And the wounded in Second World War took about 18 hours on the average to get to a doctor. Well, that's, that sort of sifted out mm -hmm. a group of those who were so badly injured that they died. So the only ones the doctors got are, one, are the ones who could be salvaged uh, in general uh, to uh, salvage at a functional level by anyone's standpoint. But in Vietnam, the, the average patient I operated on was shot or, or, by, or injured by an exploding device such as a mortar or a grenade or bouncing betty, which is a, which is a landmine. With sometimes within 30 minutes of the time he was hit, we were operating on him. So they didn't have time to die, quite mm. honestly. So our job was to do everything we could for him, and we did. And unfortunately, as a result, many of them came home as permanent cripples, although they were alive. This I am still bothered by. There was an incredible event where you were suddenly attacked uh, at the hospital by the enemy. Yes, well, more than once, but there was one uh, where I just finished surgery and walked out of the uh, Quonset hut. That was the second hospital I worked in. The, uh, the, uh, it was blown up in one, so I was moved to another, and then back to the one that they, they, they repaired. Uh, at any rate, about six or seven in the evening, it was getting dark. All of a sudden, I heard the exploding bombs and mortars all around me, and I familiar with it, knew what they meant, dove into the dirt and uh, waited it out, expecting overrun by the enemy, which didn't happen. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of a humorous side to this. I crawled on my stomach up to a door in a Quonset hut and pushed it open. And uh, I guess for some sort of security, after the uh, mortar rounds stopped coming in, waiting for the overrun from the enemy, uh, and as I looked in the door, there were several Marines laying there. The rifles pointed right at me. <laughs> uh, and I crept in and identified myself. And uh, a Navy chief was there and said, uh, you're in charge, sir. Well, that was <laughs> that was frightening for me because I had no training in, in managing combat troops. I was simply a surgeon. And he said, well, we're waiting for your orders, sir. And Steve, this is what's curious. I quickly rummaged through my mind and thought, what would John Wayne do? The, the movie <laughs> oh, star, the action right. movie star. Right. And I came up with a rough plan. We'd say, put Marines on each door with rifles, and if anybody mm. comes through, shoot them. <laughs> and then I sat down and shook. Mm. Uh, and, <laughs> and I thought later, what a ridiculous situation, putting a individual in charge who knows nothing more than what he saw in movies as a child to, to protect him and his, and his uh, subordinates. As we close out our discussion about your book, Blood on China Beach, uh, you met, obviously you met a lot of uh, interesting soldiers, uh, all kinds of of medical staff, uh, all kinds of officers. Uh, is there someone that stands out that just kind of, uh, kind of epitomizes, uh, uh, you know, the whole the whole story? Yes, I I, I would like to single out one. Uh, he was he was a man who was middle aged, was at least ten or fifteen years older than the rest of the surgeons there. Curiously, Steve, he was a young man in the Second World War. Mm. in the Solomon Islands, it's Guadalcanal, a PT boat commander. And he actually was a, was a friend of Jack Kennedy, the future president, who was also a PT boat commander. Uh, at any rate, uh, uh, he was involved in a great deal of action and commented to me that we lost every boat to the Japanese there. And in fact, he had one leg shot off. 
Uh, He was sent back to the United States. He went to college, went to medical school, became an orthopedist, got into practice. And when this war developed, he yearned for something again. He applied to the Navy. They let him come to us, even one leg. And the curious thing about him is that of not only the fact that he volunteered again, But one interesting thing he did, which made a major impact on some of the injured troops, a lot of amputees, as I've mentioned earlier, young Marines, arm shot off, leg shot off, whatever. And as an orthopedist, it was his job and other orthopedists to to do what they could to close a wound and prepare them for a prosthesis. He noticed that many of them would become depressed, which one can understand. And he had a way of dealing with that. Every day on rounds, that's where you see your patients. There were probably 20 or 30 such patients on this particular ward he had. He'd wait two or three days after a particular man who was getting more and more depressed after losing a leg or an arm uh, had time to get to, to adjust. Then on the third or the fourth day of rounds, he would walk up to that patient's rack, or it's like a cot, uh, and pull his pants leg up put his chart on the on the leg that was amputated, and this individual could see that that was not a leg, that was a prosthesis. Mm. And here is this doctor, this this officer, probably the highest rank that Marine's ever seen, has no leg, and look what he's become. Uh, and Steve, I think that did more for, for mm-hmm. those troops. I'm sure he did, he did that for 50 or 60 people while I was there. I think that was more psychotherapy than was offered in any Navy hospital in the United States right. subsequent time. Well, it's great to have role models. There there he was, a big example, uh, doing his part in spite of it all. Well, this is an he incredible did. book, everyone. Blood on China Beach, my story as a brain surgeon in Vietnam, Dr. Paul J. Pitlick. Uh, Paul, tell us how to get your book. It's on Amazon, on the Internet, and Barnes & Noble in the, in the, on the market. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Steve. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.